And that is something that our adversaries will use against us to keep people from being recruited. And that's not mis or disinformation, that's fact. So the way that China and Russia really understand information is from more of a cyber sovereignty perspective. It's a very precarious situation. It's very delicate. And I don't think we have the organizational structures to really do what we need to do in this construct. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sandisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabra, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Major Joe Littell and Captain Maggie Smith of the Army Cyber Institute at West Point. They'll be talking with us about the impact of information warfare on our ability to recruit and retain high-quality individuals, as well as the need for new ways of thinking to attain information advantage. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Guys, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. So let's jump right in with a little introduction. Can you both tell us a little bit about your background, you know, who you are, what you're working on, and how you got to where you are today? And and Maggie, let's go with you first. Okay, so I'm Captain Maggie Smith, and I'm a 17 Alpha or Cyber Officer in the United States Army. And I currently am a researcher and assistant professor at um, West Point. And I work within the Army Cyber Institute here, and I also teach uh, within the Department of Social Sciences. And my research focuses primarily on, um, I've been looking at kind of the nexus of extremism, gender, and technology for a while. I did my dissertation on that topic. And really that morphed into kind of looking more at our domestic processes that uh, people absorb information and kind of how we acquire and understand political knowledge. And that got me to kind of a mind meld with um, Major Littell when we were thinking about the ways that our adversaries are able to exploit some of the, the freedoms that we have in the information domain and, um, and potentially influence the force and basically our force readiness. And so, um, and so this was kind of the reason that his paper resonated with me and then I jumped on board to help out with it. No, that's great. And we appreciate you being here. Uh, Major Littell. I'm Joe Littell. I joined the Army a long time ago in 2003 as an infantryman. I uh, did a couple of years as that before going back to school for computer science at the University of South Florida. Uh, commissioned in 2010 and graduated at the same time with that degree. Uh, right now, I am a psychological operations officer. Previously, I spent my time in 9th PSYOP Battalion. Right now, I'm a researcher at the Army Cyber Institute, looking predominantly at uh, computational propaganda, narratives, online radicalization, things in that vein, uh, slowly moving into things like data protection and how data can be used for those previously mentioned topics. Uh, I also have taught at West Point previously in the math and history departments. Um, History, though, however, was more in the cyber and intelligence history as opposed to maybe the traditional military history that um, many people are more uh, looking at. There's kind of like a joke within the PSYOP community that the first person you have to influence is whoever you're working for. So, you know, we start working with a special forces or a Navy SEAL and you can't be like, sir, this is what I need to do. You need to be, sir, this is how I'm going to help you do your job, right? 
in unconventional warfare, you have to be like, hey, I can go and I can meet this populace and I can find out who wants to become your guerrilla, who wants to be your auxiliary, who wants to be your underground, and I can, you know, parse that up so it's best serving your battle plan um, in order to move this operation forward. And it's kind of the same thing in information warfare and an information advantage. A lot of people don't realize how it's going to directly affect them. And we kind of looked at the paper going from that angle of, well, how do I explain this so that you know, a battalion commander of a tank battalion or a BCT commander that has all these different assets, they don't necessarily think about information in the same way that they probably should, because as we see more technologies come abound and how cheap some of this stuff is to really cause great impact on our ability to fight wars and to protect our nation. Um, we wanted to kind of bridge that gap and hopefully get that information on there so that they can start thinking about it and start using it to the best of their ability to keep us safe. I think that is such a great approach uh, and exactly what we've talked about in the past of uh, this idea when we talk about the future is I'm not just going to show people and, and throw the future at them, um, but help them understand where they are in it. How am I making your life better uh, or, or more improved or your soldiers' lives? So you both authored a great piece recently on Modern War Institute called Rethinking Man Training Equip for Information Advantage. And in it, you state that while Russia and China have been executing their concepts of information warfare for quite some time, the U.S. is far behind. Why are we so far behind and what can we do to catch up? I'm going to jump in on that first um, and take the kind of political science perspective from that. Um, so I've, I've been really lucky and I got to create my own class uh, to teach to the cadets here at West Point, and it was called Politics and the Internet. And one of the things that I had my students do um, was to kind of really take a look at their media diet. So the way that they consume information, and I had them write, basically do a media journal. And so they were all really surprised about how much information and how many news sources they acquired or the ways that they access news through social media. And so essentially, the curated environments that they had made for themselves in the online environment were the ones that were kind of feeding them the information and the way and the means by which they learned about the world around them and the environment in which they're in. And for them, I think it was a very useful exercise. And I learned a lot as well about the way that we as individuals are situated within this broader information domain. And it's really a way that we share and interact with our peers, our collaborators, our families. And it's really changed because we have immediate access. And so the way that China and Russia really understand information is from more of a cyber sovereignty perspective, meaning that when they think about cyberspace and when they think about the information space, they see those as things to control and as potential vectors for um, population control in many ways. So understanding their populations from this perspective that China and Russia have is really to manage the information that their populations have access to. Whereas in the Western liberal world, we think about the internet and created the internet as a free exchange of ideas and an open society where people can come together and collaborate and share information, share ideas. And so those two sorts of values, the value of openness and freedom and sharing and the value of controlling a population um, and controlling the information and narratives that a population is able to receive, 
are very different and very contradictory in many ways. Yeah, I think Maggie's spot on with the idea of the authoritarian government versus the liberal democracy. We have very different understandings of what information is used for, right? You just look at Russia's history, China's history. They first started using information to take care of their own political enemies within their own nation, right? You can go back to the late 90s when Putin was trying to amass power. He enacted essentially web brigades to go on Runet and keep the people in line and to get his message and his power structure built. Um, I think around like 2011, 2012, there was a huge email scandal in Russia where Anonymous hacked this youth group called Nashi um, that was pro-Kremlin, pro-Putin, and showed that they were paying you know, a bunch of use to go on line and say, hey, Putin's good or put down any dissidents. Um, China's had the same thing. They called them the 50 cent, or I think it's like Wu Mao, the 50 cent army, where they would get paid 50 cents to post pro CCP propaganda on networks owned by the universities or even on networks owned by American universities where there's large Chinese contingent, right? So they view information in a very different way. And you can even look at that in their warfare doctrine, right? They have the three warfares in China and hybrid warfare in uh, Russia, and they take everything as information first. The kinetic battle is to um, support the information battle. We're in the United States. We're very much a, you know, war is war. We drop bombs, we shoot, move, and communicate, and those things don't necessarily have anything to do with information and influence until after the fact, right? You, If you've deployed before, you've probably heard people being like, oh, we need to sprinkle some IO on this because we had CIFCAS or something silly like that. And without planning information from the get-go, things will snowball very quickly and it'll go downhill pretty fast. And I think that's the main key is they've been thinking about information from the get-go because their society demands it. Otherwise, they're going to be overthrown by the next strong man, right? Up until recently, our country has never had a problem with transferring power between parties. Even though we disagree, you know, there's always a peaceful transfer of power. And that's not necessarily the case in an authoritarian dictatorship. It's usually someone dies and then the power gets transferred. How they die could be a myriad of different ways. They could luckily go to old age or they could be you know, usurped by whoever the next strong man was. Those are great points. And I think um, you know, really highlight the difference between our view of information warfare and the way that we execute it and the way that our adversary does and how significant of a gap there is there. Um, so, so kind of segueing off of that, how has that execution of information warfare impacted our ability to recruit high quality candidates as well as retain experienced and capable service members? Are the adversaries that you guys talked about, are they specifically targeting and attacking our recruitment processes or are they just benefiting from that more holistic approach that they take? So I think there's a couple extra questions you would have to add before you can answer that, right? Do we have the capability to really measure why our recruitment gains, like this year, for example, we saw that um, recruitment didn't meet the mark, right, as a force as a whole. Um, is that because of COVID? Is that because of whatever? We do see Russia and China attempting to influence military populations, attempting to influence veteran populations. They're using narratives that have been here since Vietnam of, you know, that you can't count on the Americans, that the Americans will let you down. 
Um, they're doing the same thing with, you know, service members of like, oh, those generals, they were the ones that lost you the war. You guys never lost the battle, similar to things we heard with Vietnam and the things that went along in those uh, narratives. So they've always been there and they've always been pushing it, being able to holistically determine if it's a causal relationship is something that I will not comment on because I don't believe that there's enough information to really say one way or another. But I do believe that the attempt is there and the attempt is ongoing. What it's doing, um, I wouldn't be foolhardy and say that, yes, I can measure this and say that for a fact that, you know, five or 10% of our, you know, goals are missed because of Chinese or Russian influence. They're attempting it and they're out there and, you know, information and influence is a long game. You do it long enough, it's going to have an effect. You know, we, we always hear the like repetition is the key to learning, right? So if I learn that America isn't going to take care of its soldiers or America won't take care of its allies. If I hear that enough, I probably will start to believe it because that's all I'm hearing, especially if they're the only one in the information space saying that without us pushing back against it. We can learn a lot about how they could potentially be impacting our recruitment um, efforts by looking at the general population. Um, I still, my, my family is uh, still in the Maryland, Baltimore area. And we had just moved to Baltimore City when Freddie Gray was killed. Um, and there were the riots in the city and Russia jumped all over that narrative on both sides of both the Black Lives Matter aspect of it and then the pro-police um, back the blue aspect of it. They created social media accounts online. Um, at one point, there was a social media account called um, Blacktivist that really shared information about the African-American and Black community in Baltimore and used that um, as a platform to, for social justice initiatives but it was found out later. And this was after it had more followers than the official Black Lives Matter account had. It was found later that it was it was a Russian account. And then there was another Russian account that was, you know, back the badge and it had shared ads, uh, I think over 2 million Facebook users. And so the way that they're able to be on both sides of a narrative can shape how that narrative plays out in our regular society. And if we look at and assess and of how this happens across society, we can also make assumptions about how it happens to our recruits specifically. Being military and being you know, active duty service members, it's very difficult to do research on both the American population, of course, but then even to find and be able to access data on servicemen and women. And so part of what Major Littell was highlighting about this data problem is just that the way that our regulations are structured right now is that we are unable to do some really rigorous empirical work to be able to identify and assess how in the social media space and in the online spaces, how soldiers, airmen, Marines, and seamen are responding to these narratives that are being planted and inserted into the broader uh, narratives about the military, anti-government sentiment, pro-government sentiment, and such throughout the veteran and military population. Yeah, and going on to that difficulty, like that's another fact between the authoritarian and the uh, liberal democracy. Like we have the First Amendment. We are allowed to gain and access information. Um, we're allowed to say what we want and not be prosecuted by the government. And those are beautiful things, but it also is technically a hindrance when we want to know, hey, what is actually going on there? 
I can't, you know, blanket go out and suck up a bunch of data and start looking into it because that would be infringing on people's rights. And it's rightfully there for other reasons. But in some of these situations, it does become a hindrance of I want to protect you from, you know, Russia, China influence. But I also have to be in mind that I would be infringing on your rights in order to do so. So it's, you know, one of those catch 22s of I want to do these things, but I'm not going to do these things because they uh, inhibit uh, the different liberties that are inherent to being a US citizen. And just to go onto the plane both sides, that's another part of like narrative warfare, right? The narrative doesn't stay to every person the same way. Uh, we were talking about, you know, being left behind kind of narrative before. And like, if you are a white American, it might resonate differently than you were a black American due to some of the, you know, things that happened in you know, World War II or Vietnam among Black service members, and it's not going to be the same narrative across the board. So it's going to not necessarily work for everyone, but it will work for specific populations depending on how the message is crafted because influences, you know, the person or the group of people, the message and the means that it's brought to them by. And if the three of them aren't um, working well together, the message is probably going to go flat or the ultimate end goal is going to go flat. Yeah, I think those are, are great points. I'm glad you brought them up. And I'd like to ask a follow-up to a few of the things that you said. Um, one is just to kind of highlight a point when you were talking about repetition. And um, we know from some of the, the research we've done, some of the experts we've talked to, that, that that is actually, you know, sort of a human bias that even if you know something is wrong, I think it's if you hear it three three different times, you accept it, even if you know it's a piece of false information. So it is it is a very dangerous thing. But I also wanted to ask about, you talked about the tactics that they've been using. Um, and, you know, this goes all the way back to even you mentioned the Vietnam War. Um, do you think, though, that there is uh, that it's more dangerous now because of the tools that are available and the connectivity that we have, whereas back in maybe the Vietnam era, you could reach a certain amount of people with that propaganda? But now in 2022, you can essentially reach millions and millions of people around the globe. Do you think there's there's any more of a significance there in this day and age? I personally do. Yes, um, I've gotten into heated conversations with other people from the PSYOP community about it, because a lot of people think that, you know, it's the same methods that have been used for forever. However, there are new means of communicating right before. If, you know, Russia wanted to influence someone, they would actually have to send a person there and figure out where their, you know, personality is, where their, you know, psychographics meet. Now they can just buy a bunch of data off of, you know, Facebook or Experion or Axiom, I think is the other big one. Um, and, you know, have a data scientist or someone with, you know, a data analyst with some skill and start piecing together, okay, this is a population that I can get the most bang for my buck and never leave Moscow to do it. And that's a very dangerous thing. And they have direct line to someone's phone, you know, because people are on social media. Um, you can buy all sorts of advertisements and we've seen it. And this is a huge gap and I can talk about it more in depth later. But yeah, the, the whole data paradigm is something that's super scary to me. And it's something that I think we aren't necessarily um, as a nation. It's not even like something that the DOD necessarily can do. But as a nation, we're not focused too much on it. Although I did see that there is a little bit of uh, legislation that just got written um, that's going to be going through the House, I believe, soon about data protection, but it's got some flaws in it. I think I take a different perspective on it. Um, I'm worried and concerned, but I also think that we go through the we go through evolution um, and we evolve alongside technology. And I think the difficulty with the current technology and the pace at which it updates and um, changes is just that even, um, for example, in in my teaching here, I've adapted how I 
how I teach my students. I include podcasts, I include videos, I choose different media because the students in my classroom today are very different than when I was in the classroom back in like the late 90s, early 2000s. I, similar to Major Littell, was enlisted for about nine years prior to commissioning. And so, um, so the age gap between me and my students is, you know, I could be there feasibly be their parent, which is so scary. But at the same time, that means that I grew up with a very different, you know, set of technology tools at my fingertips. I didn't get a computer until I was 12. And I certainly didn't have to type out my papers until I was in my, you know, middle of high school at that stage, I would say. And so understanding and being someone who researches and wants to understand these phenomena, what happens when narratives are manipulated by our foreign adversaries and how that could potentially impact the force. I think it also requires us to do kind of this assessment of where we are with technology, but also make this statement that we can't not evolve along with technology. And so um, despite the fact that we have new challenges with the current environment that we're in, especially with the media and information environment, the access to information happens so much faster. It's not like I have to go to the library to do research. I can simply look online and find valid and invalidated sources on a whim. And so I think we need to adapt how we approach the concept of knowledge and how we approach the concept of learning and educating and really work to understand the ways that people are ingesting information these days. Because if we can get to that human element of assessing and understanding how people access, make sense of, and put together and shape their worldviews, then we can probably have a better idea of how we can mitigate the effects of, of technologies that may be able to be used against us by our adversaries, like massive data sets or like um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, augmented decision-making tools and things like that. Yeah, I think it's important to realize that this isn't the first time we've had a huge jump in technology. Like you look at propaganda, associated with like the Gutenberg printing press, right? It caused huge hundred year wars because of it, right? Um, when the radio came out, 1938 was when they had that War of the Worlds broadcast where people legitimately thought we were under attack. And as new technology comes, it takes a little bit of while and a shuffle. Um, and there's a lot of chaos that is up brought with it. And I think that's what we're seeing um, across, you know, the world right now with social media. Um, and just access to information. No one really knows who to trust because the old ways are out and the new ways are here. And it's going to take a little bit of shuffling. And it's going to take some time before trusted sources are trusted sources again, in my opinion. And um, unfortunately, it will cause a lot of strife and it already is causing a lot of strife. But it's just one of those things that we have to learn. Like Maggie said, we have to evolve with it in order to get to a better place. I think that's an excellent point because it's been brought up before when we've discussed um, narrative warfare and, and a lot of other ideas when it comes to information warfare is the idea that we're never going to be able to completely insulate and turn it off and stop all the bad stuff, misinformation, disinformation, um, even even alternative narratives with uh, true information from getting in. But we can potentially build up resiliency when it comes to critical thinking skills, um, identifying what can be uh, that misdisinformation and understanding the attack vectors when it comes to that. And that kind of segues to, you know, your, your answers were fantastic and segues to what we wanted to ask is, you know, what can we do about this? How does the Army combat something so pervasive and potent as misinformation, disinformation, because it doesn't just extend to the Army or even the larger DOD or even the government. It extends to the 
the whole, the society. So what, what can we do? So excellent question. Um, I think luckily for us, the Army, as well as the broader DOD community, is really, really good at developing professional military education and has a ton of resources available to do this. Um, the problem is that we don't really know what to do at this stage. And I think there's a lot of, of different um, approaches, but I think we need to think about it in kind of this tiered approach, like thinking about which level these messages and narratives have an impact. So um, I wrote a piece for War on the Rocks last year uh, that talked about diversity as kind of this antidote to myths and disinformation, because if you are surrounded by a diverse set of people and you appreciate them as individuals, then you are probably less likely to be believe narratives and um, disinformation that negatively portray a specific group of people. Um, and you're, then you're less susceptible to creating these in-groups and out-groups. So I sound very sociology-oriented when I say that, but um, there's some great literature that details how face-to-face -face communication. So I think when we think about it in the Army, um, you know, small units are key. And so the commander of these small units, the platoon leader, the platoon sergeants, squad leaders, having conversations face-to-face -face with people not relying on you know text messaging we all know is nearly impossible to correctly portray sarcasm or anything in, in text messaging so when you see people face to face it's a different exchange of knowledge than when you text people or you have a very sterile kind of interaction with them so at the small unit level it's encouraging tough conversations around topics that are relevant and um, understanding that our soldiers are not insulated from what's going on in the broader context of this country and that requires, you know, leadership development from a higher echelon. So at your brigades, like having your brigade commanders talk with their battalion commanders and company commanders, and then all the way up to seeing senior army leadership and senior DOD leadership, you know, proliferating the narratives that are correct and true and valid and backed by fact and, and really having that trickle down effect. And then with professional military education. It's really getting the concept of information warfare, the concept of mis and disinformation into every stage of PME that you see from like your NCO schools all the way through, you know, up to the, the Army War College and, and having people reiterate the message that the information that you are receiving, you need to have a diverse set of opinions that you surround yourself with in order to make sure that you remain open and receptive to new ideas and don't try and outgroup people based on narratives that could be false and leading you down a path that um, an adversary wants you to go and not necessarily you want to go. I agree. I think um, understanding bias in reporting in general is a huge key. I think people think that we kind of get into that trap of like, I agree with this, so it's not biased. Whereas pretty much every source of information is going to have some sort of bias, even if it's not explicit. And, you know, that person had a set of experiences that has shaped how they view the world. And if you can't look at, you know, multiple different sources on the same story and understand why, you know, certain stories are carried by Fox News versus CNN or why, you know, certain angles are taken by those same two corporations um, in their explaining of the news. Um, then you're going to have a really difficult time trying to suss out what truth is or what is something that you can necessarily trust. And I think we, um, at least I've seen it um, in instruction where, you know, you have a student write a paper and they give you their, you know, bibliography with it and they have 
sources that are just not good academic sources. And I don't think necessarily people are being taught how to actually do research and how to look things up. And then there's the other half of it is of people have lives, you know, not everyone is going to be super well educated. They're just trying to make it through their life working, you know, 40, 60, 80 hours a week to pay their rent. So they're going to have trouble. And it goes the same with, you know, a young soldier. Maybe they uh, got married early, have kids, and they have to balance, you know, a high op tempo that the army puts on them and, you know, whatever family responsibilities they have. And it makes it much more difficult for them to have that kind of information. So unless we're specifically teaching it to them, it's very difficult to expect them to know how to do it themselves, right? And you'll get people on um, kind of certain sides, assuming that this is like teaching people group think and that kind of stuff. And it, it, it could be if people want to take it that way. But we're talking about actually using critical thinking and saying, okay, I have this piece of information. Who's it by? Okay. What is it actually saying? What are they trying to say? Why are they trying to say it? Now, let me look at the same thing from the opposite end of the spectrum, because they're going to be doing the same thing. There's going to be some sort of bias there. Uh, the final point I want to make as I ramble on is that when we're talking about information and influence, we need to get away from thinking of it as just mis and disinformation. Narratives have a level of truth, right? We all have this level of experience that if someone puts a crazy story in front of us that says, you know, the former President Trump was a space alien that has 35 tentacles growing out of his brain. We've all seen pictures of them. We've all seen interactions. We know that's completely ridiculous. But if you've never seen him before and, you know, this is the first time you're getting, you might be like, okay, maybe that's a thing. But without that kind of basis of reality there or that basis of understanding and personal experience, it becomes much easier to take a narrative or have that used against you for a different narrative and shape the way that you have your worldview or your belief structure. So we need to kind of move away from that idea that information is strictly false. Some of this information is just stuff we screwed up on and is bad, right? We know that like the Vanessa Gillian thing happened. A poor young specialist was murdered. And that's something that the army has to talk about. And that is something that our adversaries will use against us um, to keep people from being recruited. Um, and that's not Mr. Disinformation, that's fact. And we need to understand that and we need to do better. We need to actually go down to the foundational levels and fix the things that cause that to happen or the failures that cause that to happen, I should say. And that's just something we have to look at when we're talking about information warfare and protecting, you know, the Army, the DOD, the United States from our adversaries using those type of things against us. So th those are great answers, uh, maybe too great, because I think they answered the next question that I was going to ask, but I'll try to reframe it to look at, at, at that question from a different angle. Um, but I do want to harp on a couple points here that you guys brought up. Um, when you're talking about in the Army, we can mandate these education courses to our soldiers. But it brings up that point that, that Major Littell made earlier where he talked about, you know, authoritarian governments versus a liberal democracy. We can't force our citizens to go through these critical thinking classes as part of their citizenship. Um, so there is there's that balance between how do we communicate the right information to make people want to go through this and, and to, to independently corroborate things that they read on the Internet versus how do we let them have their individual liberties? So it, it is it is such a, a massive and complex problem. So let me try to reframe this question. Um, because the original question was going to ask, you know, the Army is a very reactive organization, um, and you can't be reactive when it comes to misinformation, disinformation. Once it's out, you can't react to it. It's already out there. 
So professional military education is a great way to com- combat that. If you start the foundation where these uh, your soldiers out in the field have that cr- those critical thinking skills to begin with, they'll be less influenced by what they see out there. But what about some areas where professional military education won't take care of it? Are there any areas where the Army is still reactive to these and where we shouldn't be, or, or how do we change that? I think that there is a certain level of reactiveness that you're going to always have, right? You're never going to kind of like the idea of like, you're never going to get murders down to zero. There's always going to be that crazy person that stabs someone else to death. We can try to approach zero, but we're never going to get there. Um, With that being said, I think there's a certain level of, you can kind of war game what your adversaries are going to use against you, right? We can see kind of some of this happening in Ukraine and Russia right now. Russia is looking for a pretext to invade. If you get into the like the tactics of it, there's no fresh water going into Crimea because the Ukrainians um, dammed up the main freshwater source. And that's a big problem for, you know, the only freshwater or sorry, warm water port that Russia has in Crimea. They've been having to ship water over a bridge in order to get fresh water into Crimea. And that's a lot of the, you know, underlying pretext. But they're using information in order to make it seem like they're the ones that are under threat because, you know, NATO is encroaching on them because there's, you know, Nazis in Ukraine that are, they're attacking ethnic Russians within Ukraine and they have to protect them, which was the, you know, premise under Crimea. And they use these this information to kind of gain a foothold. We can assume that those type of things are coming up because we know that they want to find a pretext for war. Um, in order to gain the advantage that they want, which is getting fresh, at least this is my opinion, getting fresh water back into Crimea. Um, So we can potentially think of, okay, I know they're going to say this, so I can get out in front of it, right? That's a proactive stance. Um, There's always going to be things like Vanessa Gillian where you're going to be reactive because someone, you know, had this horrible thing happen that isn't a part of everyday life within the army. And so I think that a lot of it is just having an organization that is out there knowing what is going on within the theaters of combat and understanding what our adversaries are trying to do and being in front of it. We've talked about, you know, the move to information advantage and there's, you know, the inform portion of it, but it's expecting ACPA and public affairs as a whole to handle this huge problem of knowing what our adversary is going to do and get out the inform being like, you know, Russia is going to say this because they're trying to do this, right? If the public knew that, it will probably lessen any kind of mis- and disinformation coming out of Russia because we're explaining why they want to do these things. Um, and part of that is on, you know, the actual media, the greater media um, as a whole, but they don't necessarily know what's going on with the military, what we're trying to do. There's a certain level of we over um, classify things. So something that could go out to the public to give them better understanding maybe classified because someone just classified it and misclassified it. It's a very precarious situation and it's very delicate. And I don't think we have the organizational structures to really do what we need to do in this construct. However, that doesn't mean we couldn't grow those organizations, train people to do this and have, you know, analysts out there looking like, hey, in Russia, we hear these rumblings in the Strait of Taiwan and the South China Sea what do we do? What do we think our adversary is going to do? We can now give that information out to the public and potentially dull some of the operations that our adversaries are going to do because we are in the information space before them. So now they're the ones that are reacting to what we've done. We've said, hey, we know that China is going to try to you know, rattle the saber against Vietnamese fishing boats as a pretext to recce their landing spots for 
um, Taiwan or whatever. I apologize if that's a silly example, but something along those lines, we can assume that, you know, in order to do some sort of amphibious assault, China will probably need to figure out where the perfect beachheads are, and they're probably going to use some sort of pretext um, in order to do so. And, you know, they've had plenty of disputes with the Vietnamese fishing boats, and they've sent um, ships down there before. Why would that be any different now? It just would be the context, right? And that's information warfare, right? It's a deception. Two ideas. So one, I think that at each unit level, we need to do PNCPT on ourselves. So looking at uh, that MI tool that looks at the political, economic information, our infrastructure, um, our strengths and weaknesses, physical environment, the time in which things are happening or the context, and then like, what's the social context? What's the social construct of that unit? So if we take the, the same notion that we use in military intelligence that we look at our adversarial forces for, or the lenses that we look at them with and do an assessment on what their strengths and weaknesses are, and we do that to ourselves, I think we can better understand where those cleavages are, where our gaps are that our adversaries may um, try to exploit. And then that allows us to be on the watch for those types of um, narratives or malign influence campaigns that would be trying to exploit those weaknesses that we've already identified. And then secondly, I think of an area that the military in general misses is the, the transition phase. Um, so when a person is actually leaving the service and their experience of leaving the service, are they leaving feeling good about their service? Did the transition happen smoothly? Were they given the necessary tools in order to make a transition from being in a regimented military lifestyle to a civilian lifestyle, or are they leaving with a really bad taste in their mouth and pretty pissed off at the state of affairs? Uh, you know, was it an unsatisfactory exit? Um, I think looking at the way that we discharge people, the way that we set our soldiers up, um, even the ones that only do, you know, a single enlistment, they're often our highest turnover, obviously. Um, really assessing how we do that transition period and the resources that we are able to give to them and help them with as they get out, I think can have an impact, you know, years down the line when people are engaging in more public narratives about the military. So that's two places I think where we, we need to up our game is doing basically the military intelligence assessments that we do on our adversaries when we go into a conflict, doing that on ourselves to understand better who we are, where our weaknesses are, and how we can mitigate those. And then really starting to pay attention to that transitioning population to make sure that the American public and the narratives that are out there about the veteran population and therefore military service remain um, more positive than they have been lately. I think those are great approaches overall because um, you're really looking at, you have to know the operational environment before you can operate in it. Um, so I think it, that's those are incredible uh, thoughts um, and approaches to that. And I think that actually segues, you know, we had um, Dr. Uh, Ajit Mon and uh, Mr. Paul Kobaugh on uh, to, to discuss narrative warfare before and the idea that in order to be proactive, you can't just have a counter narrative and something you said earlier about it's not just disinformation and misinformation, it's overall and it could be even narrativizing things that are true, um, but the 
perspective they're using is is narrative warfare. And so I think there's there's a level of proactivity there. And so, you know, in for retention, you you both talked about in the article that location and, and social narratives matter. And in a world where geographic location is is increasingly being devalued, does it make sense to give soldiers more freedom on where they're stationed as an incentive to re-enlist? There's been a couple pieces that have come out recently that have looked at um, kind of the PCS or permanent change of station deficit uh, for families. Um, I'm a, I used to be a dual military couple. My husband is now a civilian, um, but I am, you know, I'm up here at West Point as a geographic bachelor because my husband's job, he works for NASA down at Goddard. So he's happy there. And we love my daughter's school and me being up here just didn't make sense for them to move. So there's, I think when you look at my own personal example, if I were a target of an adversary, the ways that they could potentially influence how I'm thinking about my current situation could be trying to make me miss my family more. They would try and, and attack the ways that I feel satisfaction um, of, with the work that I do. Uh, they could try and make me feel disillusioned with the, my desire to continue serving my country um, and those types of things. And so when we look at each individual soldier and the context in which they live in, meaning their own family unit and the, their friend groups and their family groups and, and how the people they surround themselves with shape who they are, removing that geographic root has great, I think it has big implications. And so I know that the army is working um, to figure out what the best model is for moving soldiers and identifying ways to mitigate the deficits that are created when PCS moves happen on a rapid basis, like two and three years. And I just think that again, this is like taking an introspective approach and, and assessing how an adversary can target the weaknesses or gaps that are created by our current operations and how we do things currently, and then figuring out ways where we can fill those gaps or mitigate those risks to best support the soldiers as they go throughout and progress their, through their careers. So PCS moves, um, for me personally, it'd be great to, you know, Homestead, um, I do think there's value in changing up units because then you get different perspectives, you prevent groupthink, you get new people filtering in, um, but it does deteriorate the ability to really foster and create and curate valuable relationships that have longstanding impact on your life and those those connections that we feel that are really, truly important, the support networks um, that are available to people who have more stability in a specific area and are able to do things over time with the same people and friend groups. I agree with uh, Maggie's assessment on that. Uh, I think it's also, we have to understand that with retention, there's going to be a certain amount of people who are just going to get out, right? They do their, you know, four years or get their GI Bill, they get their job training, and then they weren't planning on staying anyways. What we probably need to focus on more are the people that thought they were going to do longer and got out or people who were thinking about getting out after those four years and decided to stay in and figure out why those reasons are. Um, I think with the PCS, we also, beyond the strife that it puts on families, it also kind of allows some toxic leadership to slowly make their way and never really get removed from command or what have you, which also heavily impacts on people wanting to stay in the military or not, right? There's that level of, I know that there's going to be some sort of strife in the military, right? We all kind of come in knowing we have to move every couple of years, we may have to deploy, things of that nature. And it, it's going to cause people to leave, but that's kind of, to a certain extent, 
the nature of the beast. Um, the other side of it is with PCSing and without having really clear ways to remove toxic leadership, we see um, a lot of people get out because they just don't want to work for an organization that doesn't treat them you know, fairly. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that's like super toxic where it's, you know, sexual assault and harassment and things of that nature. It's something that can be as simple as, you know, these people just don't care about my time. They don't care about what I want to do in the military. I'm seen as, you know, a meat sack that they can punish for the next three years, two years that I'm in charge and they're going to make my you know, NCOER, OER, or whatever the other services, um, fitness reports type things um, are called, that's what people think about. And it, it will break people down. It'll make people not want to work for them. It'll make people not want to be the army, especially if you, you know, get two in a row because you PCS and same situation at this unit. So it must be an endemic army problem as opposed to necessarily just, hey, that one person was a jerk. So I think there's, there's, extra layers to it because yes, families are heavily impacted, but we're also losing single soldiers. It's not just, you know, you know, people with families that don't want to move their kids from schools because um, you want to have some sort of stability. A single soldier can say, this is not what I want to do because the culture is not what they want to be a part of. You know, they would rather um, do their hard work and get their um, appreciation elsewhere. I had a random thought the other day when we were doing, um, there's been DOD-wide uh, suicide awareness training and it goes, it trickles down. You do it as a big group and then a small group. And so we're doing it in our small group here at ACI. And I realized that we put so much emphasis on the army being the, the be all and end all for each of our individual soldiers. Like it's, if you need someone, you reach out to somebody in the army. If you need anything, the army is gonna, you know, your army family is going to provide for you. Uh, and while emphasis on that is really good, I think it eliminates a focus on helping or encouraging soldiers to have a life outside of the army because being attached to something, a friend group, um, you know, a CrossFit gym, a running group, uh, those types of things in a community allows you to feel that you're a part of something that is going to be lasting instead of something that may go away because you choose to leave the service. But I do think that when we do these PCS moves and this consideration about PCS, that we should start thinking from that perspective. You know, it's it's really difficult to have Uncle Sam telling you what to do and where to be and where to live and when you can go on leave and um, when you have to have duty and when you have to be away from your family. All of those types of things can make life really stressful. And so if we only say that and only encourage our soldiers to look within the army for support, then we're really missing kind of the community structures that are around both bases as well as the surrounding areas that soldiers can get invested in that may provide more enrichment to their lives so that they're more satisfied then with their job within the army. And it may help keep people in the service because they do feel as though they can have something that's outside of the service that adds value to their life. It kind of goes in with what you were talking about for diversity of thought being a uh, thing to fight misinformation and disinformation. Having diverse hobbies. If one of them fails, you still have something else to go on. And that's kind of a lot of people have trouble and struggle when the military goes away, even if they didn't want to be um, a part of it anymore, because that's all they knew. And that was their only support structure. And obviously that can be unhealthy in a lot of ways and can lead to um, mental health problems, but I am not a mental health professional, so I won't go down that rabbit hole any, but it's just, yeah, diversity of action is just as important as diversity of thought. Well, and I think the other the other thing about PCSing is that you do have 
children. And um, I think in an age where relationships are so virtual, um, we may think it's easier for kids to move a lot, but I think it would be harder because then those fragile relationships that they have as through each PCS, you don't have the staying power to really develop long lasting relationships with people. Like my BFF is still my middle school friend. Um, I didn't grow up in a military family, but having her and knowing that I come from a place and I have an identity again, that's like outside of being in the military. Uh, you know, my daughter has been in the same school since she's been in fourth grade, which we feel really lucky for. But having that, the, the children's ability to have some stability, I think will set them up to potentially offer the opportunity to to have roots in a community unlike they have in the past. And I think that's an important aspect to recognize as well. We're not only digital citizens ourselves, but we're raising digital citizens. So we need to show them how relationships in the physical space and relationships in online can really um, augment each other and really benefit you from a holistic perspective. No, I think you both bring up excellent points when it comes to that because General Milley too has said in terms of perspective, we are an army for and of the people. And so we can't just completely segregate ourselves from that society. Um, and that's part of the problem we have right now with civil military divide. And it's also a perspective problem in that that's what Mad Sai, the crux of the program, tries to do is harness the intellect of the nation because there's so many perspectives outside of just the army um, and, and DOD that we tend to think about. I want to pivot a little bit and um, this is for uh, Captain Dr. Maggie Smith. Um, you recently had a really prescient um, and present piece that came out on the 18th of January called Home for the Holidays, The Global Implications of a State-Level Cyber Attack. And it's it's a bit tangential to what we're talking about, um, but I was wondering if you could expound on that piece a little bit. And then, you know, how does that relate to when we think about DOD, um, not just cybersecurity, but what does that mean for information advantage? Yeah, so this actually does tie in, I think. Uh, my husband is a civil servant working in the National Capital Region, or NCR, and he forwarded me an email that he had gotten from um, his center's uh, chief medical officer, and it was explaining how uh, the COVID numbers in Maryland looked really good, but how that was inaccurate because Maryland's website or Maryland Department of Health, the state level organization had been hacked and some of the regional local organizations, health organizations underneath MDH had also been affected. And so they were unable to report accurate um, COVID surveillance data. Uh, and this was at the beginning of December. And so when you think about it in the broader perspective, this is right before the holidays. So you have families that are considering traveling outside of the state. You also have families that are considering coming to the state. And now Maryland's pretty small, but when you look at it from a demographic perspective and the impact that it could have on a federal workforce, the third largest army population is located at Fort Meade. And so you have that consideration. You have millions and billions of grant and research and R&D dollars that are invested in organizations and private companies that are defense industrial based companies like Northrop Grumman that are that are flagged there and research centers that um, are there like the Johns Hopkins um, Applied Physics Lab and things like that that have DOD contracts. And so when we think about it from a military perspective, this data that was unable to be entered into the Maryland Department of Health System meant that the entire data supply chain 
was corrupted all the way up to the World Health Organization. So data in Maryland was not available, which then meant that CDC numbers or the Center for Disease Control at the national level was inaccurate. And therefore the numbers that CDC was giving to the World Health Organization was inaccurate. The concern is that take away the fact that this is health data, think about it just as a generic data supply chain. If one of those entry points or one of those insert inputs into that data supply chain is broken, then you may rack and stack priorities, you may allocate resources, and you may um, pay attention to situations or areas that you wouldn't pay attention to if the data were accurate. Um, and so that was really my concern is that when we think about the DOD and how we prioritize, how we think about force readiness, that something as small as the Maryland Department of Health having inaccurate COVID surveillance reporting data, that does not allow for our national DOD level force assessment, force readiness assessment to be accurate either because DOD may plan an exercise in Maryland because it looks like it's okay and Omicron is not ravaging the state. Um, and so from that perspective, our adversaries can also influence potentially the data that is ingested by those data supply chains. And when we have a corrupted data environment that has impact on our you know, AI and machine learning decision augmented tools. So if I'm a decision maker and I'm using data and information that's fed and then an algorithm decides to give me kind of my assessment and so that I can make a decision, if I'm, those algorithms are working off of a corrupted or polluted data environment, then I am going to get corrupted and inaccurate outputs and therefore my decisions will be based on inaccurate information and could be detrimental to the overall force structure, the overall priorities, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, I don't think you can overstate how important that point is, though. I mean, you're talking about national level and even world level organizations operating on a faulty premise, uh, and that can get really dangerous. So I, so I think it's incredibly important uh, to bring that up and talk it out. I want to ask now what you would say to potential recruits. So what, what advice do you have for them? What can you say to them who are thinking about joining the military? And, you know, on the other side of that, what would you say to service members who are already in, um, but maybe considering or maybe not considering re-enlistment? What, what advice do you have for them as well? I think from my perspective as an educator, and I love um, my teaching role, I think the value that my students last semester got out of doing a media diet and really understanding where they got their information, um, I had them annotate how they accessed news sources. So when they saw a news story, if they clicked on it and it was through Instagram, they would mark down Instagram, right? So you, you get this pattern of life for yourself about where you get your information and having that type of self-awareness. Um, just on an individual level, this is army agnostic, you know, whatever your profession is. Uh, I think it's pretty illuminating to understand the places where bias is probably influencing the way that you get information. So if my Instagram account, of course, or whatever um, social media flavor I choose to use, it's curated by me because I choose to follow people. I choose to listen and, and understand and get things from um, the sources that I select. So that means that it's probably has my biases ingrained into what I see and what I get as information. So doing a media diet catalog um, is kind of an interesting way to understand where your where your blind spots are 
and recognizing that you do have blind spots and that we don't have perfect information and never will. And so understanding where those gaps may be can be really helpful. And that's for anyone. And then I'll let Major Littell talk about Army specific. Yeah. So for recruiting or retention, it kind of goes with what Maggie's saying and what we've said earlier about understanding biases and understanding where you're getting your information from and doing an honest, you know, cost benefit analysis of what are the good things of joining the military or what are the bad things. Um, even if it is from a bias source, you can, you know, annotate it and weigh it slightly differently. But underlying, there's probably some sort of truth or fact in there. Um, in doing so, you get away from necessarily making emotional responses to your decisions, which is ultimately what influence is trying to do. It's trying to inhibit an emotional response so that you change your behavior. Um, most of the influence that we see online is attacking emotion, right? It's not necessarily trying to make a logical argument with you. It's trying to scare you. It's trying to make you think about what it's going to do to you or your family. You see a lot of the misinformation around vaccines of that the vaccines aren't safe, that, you know, a bunch, like if you really go down the rabbit hole, you know, people think that millions of people are going to die from the vaccines in the next two years because it's some big conspiracy from, you know, the new world order or whoever else. And if you go strictly off of emotion, you're probably going to make a very different decision than if you take the time to understand bias, critically think through the situation and say, there is this benefit from joining the army or this benefit from staying in the army. There's this you know, detriment to doing both because the army is not perfect. The army will never be perfect. And you can say that for any organization, not just you know ones within the government and the DOD. And you're ultimately going to have to be, am I willing to take the good with the bad? Um, you know, you could say, hey, I'm going to go work at Google. And everyone thinks, you know, that's the great thing. They have all these, you know, all this money that's going to be coming. And, you know, they have seven different uh, restaurants in the headquarters and you get to go work out and whatever. But you're also living in San Francisco. And even if you're making that money, you're probably going to be living in a one bedroom apartment at best. If not, you're probably going to be living with roommates and if you have a family and so on and so forth. Um, so there's detriments even to being, you know, I always use Google just because it's, you know, the easy one for people to visualize, but nothing is perfect and you have to honestly go through and try to critically think through the situation and determine, you know, what are the benefits, what are the detriments, and how do I weigh them based on my own personal biases and based off of the biases from the information that I've gathered. I would also say that leaders play a large role in um I mean, it, you know, we always say that everything comes down to leadership. And uh, I do think that when you have a soldier or you have a peer that is considering leaving the military service, that having an honest conversation that is trying as best as possible to put emotions aside and to really kind of weigh the consequences of um, whichever choice that you choose and consequences, not as a bad thing, but leaders play a large role. Um, the reason that I'm still in I was one of those people that signed up to, to get an education, um, and I, I did, but um, I stayed in because I had amazing leaders, and some of whom are also still here at, at West Point and things like that. Like my old company commander is now the um, deputy department head of the Department of Social Sciences, and she was, you know, someone that inspired me. Um, she went and got her PhD, and, and I said, I'm going to do that. So the way that leaders interact, just understand the impact that you have on your soldiers. If you are able to help them determine and assess the, the situation that they're considering, um, whether to get out or stay in, and helping them see what options exist and um, helping them 
if they choose to get out, helping them if they choose to stay in, I think is really important. Um, so again, it comes back to investing in people and, and having those face-to-face -face conversations and showing that you care because we do feel pretty disconnected, especially during a pandemic when we're closed off. So those, uh, those types of conversations honest and heartfelt are, are pretty important. I sound very mother hen when I say that, and I know that, but um, I do consider myself very optimistic about the human race and that we are all inherently good. So uh, that's where that is coming from, I think. Um, I think there's something to be said about like the leadership side of it, right? And if you understand what your soldiers, subordinates, peers, goals are, you can help move them towards that. And not everyone needs to stay in the army, right? This The structure just isn't built for that. And, you know, I always looked at it as if someone was getting out, I wanted to know what they were planning on doing. It's one thing to say, I'm going to get out of the army and go back to college and here, can you help me write, you know, papers, sir, to, you know, get my um, application set. And that's someone who has a plan that is moving forward. And it's very easy for a leader to say, yes, I will help you. You know, I wish you would stay in, but, you know, I understand you have to do what's best for you and what you want to do in your goals. Um, there's a completely different thing of I'm getting out of the army and I'm don't know what I'm going to do and kind of being all over the place and not really having a plan. And then that's where leadership should probably be stepping in and saying, Hey, like, what if we did something different in the army? There's all these other opportunities, right? The army isn't just this specific unit that you're in. Would that be something that's appealing to you? Because I don't want you to just go out there and be a statistic of someone who gets out and doesn't know what they're doing and, you know, is either underemployed, unemployed, or, you know, worse having mental health problems because they just don't feel like they fit in the world anymore. And that makes them susceptible to, you know, influence operations. We look at a lot of the domestic influence that's happened, uh, especially among veterans, and a lot of them co-opt um, military terminology and military um, narratives in order to recruit people in. So I think a lot of it is, you know, very much on leaders and actually caring what your people are going to do. Maybe you're not wanting to go to college. Here's a program that will help you get a job after it. You know, the Army has the, the skill bridge programs and the DOD has similar things that maybe you can, you know, nudge them to, or maybe they just go to a tech school to learn how to, you know, do a trade, plumbing, electrician, carpenter, whatever, which are, you know, in high demand these days. So I think Maggie brought up a great point about leadership has a huge influential impact. And if it's a bad leader, it will probably push people away. And if it's a good leader, yeah, you'll probably lose people, but you're going to lose those people anyways. And in my opinion, and I think Maggie will probably agree with me, it's as a leader, you've signed up to do these things and you've signed up to help the people underneath you in order to achieve one, the objective that your unit sets out to you, but also the goals that your soldiers want to have and want to accomplish. I, I've always been a big advocate of like, hey, if you want to go and try out for some unit that, you know, is a SMU or, you know, in the soft community elsewhere, then, you know, hey, I'm all for it. You need to, you know, do the work and put the work in, but I will do what's within my, you know, reason to help you get there. If you want to get out and go to college and become, you know, a doctor, I, I will help you write your interests, you know, papers in order to get into college, or I will, you know, write a recommendation if I need to do that. And that's what a leader should be doing, right? And that will ultimately, yes, you'll lose good people, but you'll also probably retain people because they'll see that you care and you want them to achieve their goals because you honestly do. Yeah, it's amazing uh, how life-changing a good leader or a bad leader can be. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I, I still remember 
the exact high school teacher who essentially helped me frame the way that I think in life, you know, not just in the, the subject he was teaching, but that that critical thinking skills that I got from him. And it led me on a path to more or less where I am today. Um, you know, good leaders, in my opinion, have good communication. They're they're they have good empathy and, and they're charismatic and they help you understand yourself and how to make good decisions. So I'm really appreciative of you guys coming here and talking to us today. And now the hard part is over. Uh, we went down a few rabbit holes and we sidestepped uh, a few others. But now we're going to get into our rapid fire questions. Um, we ask these to all our guests. They're always the same every time. So let's start with the first one. What technology or trend keeps you up at night? And and we'll go to Maggie first and then over to Joe. The trend that concerns me is, I think it was just before the beginning of the year, the MI6 chief went on net and was um, answered some questions, but he raised concerns about data traps. And in international relations and thinking about the global economy, there's this concept called um, debt traps, where a country is so indebted to another country that they um, pretty much are owned by them. Their sovereignty is, is threatened. And so thinking through what it means to be a sovereign nation is where the rabbit hole that my brain has been going down lately. And considering what this MI6 guy means by data traps. And that's a scenario when someone like China has been able to buy up enough data or take it through covert means or whatever. Uh, like Recorded Future just put out a, a little while ago, put out an article that talked about um, China stealing all of India's biometric data. And so when you consider the amount of data that we store and the amount of data that we have on everyone and a country or a nation state's ability to threaten the sovereignty of another nation because they own their data and their citizens' data to such an extent that it becomes a threat to their sovereignty. So Maggie kind of stole my answer with data, so I'll go down a different rabbit hole. So I would say the over-reliance on um, decision-enabling technologies, AI, machine learning, what have you, I think we are getting to a point where a lot of assumptions are made that those technologies will always work and always work the way we expect them. Um, I know when I was a young soldier going through the army, um, you had to, you know, learn how to use a map and compass and protractor to do land navigation, even though you knew that you would always have, or you would assume you'd always have GPS there available for you, Blue Force trackers in your vehicles, what have you. The other side of it is marksmanship, right? You have to learn how to shoot with iron sights before you have to uh, have any kind of optics on it. And we get to this point where one technology fails, two it can be manipulated by our adversaries through, you know, various data poisoning and data contamination attacks. And three, it can just be wrong, right? It's to a certain extent, the math is always going to be the same, but if you're putting in bad data to begin with, you're probably going to get bad answers out. We see that in, you know, the social scientists with recidivism data, right? You put in a lot of bad policing data and you get, you know, a lot of bad results out of it and you get harsher and stricter things based off of race and location of where people live, even though they've, you know, stripped that thing away. And we're kind of in that flux of where everyone's talking about AI, 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 and machine learning, that there's a certain level of that hype curve that we're still going up. And we think that it can solve every problem. And while it's very good at certain things, there are very specific limits to the technology that you can't just throw a bunch of data into it and hope for the best, right? Um, you'll get an answer, the math will work, 
but it may not be an answer that's actually true or um, usable in the long run. Okay, now we're going to get a little personal with the next question. So what's something about you that most people might not know that you are willing to share on a podcast? So I have signed a Hollywood acting contract. Now that's a good one. We haven't had anything along those lines yet. Tell me more about that. Well, it gets a little TMI, but um, I was, so Jennifer Aniston back in 2011 um, produced a, a movie called Five, and it captured the stories of five women who had experienced breast cancer. And um, I am a previvor, so I inherited the BRCA2 genetic mutation, um, which puts me at about an 86% lifetime chance of developing breast cancer over my life and a high risk of ovarian cancer. And they were looking for someone who had my specifics and I was able to go. But I had a really awkward conversation with my first sergeant about like a quick turnaround to go fly out to Hollywood for a weekend to do an acting gig. (laughs) Yeah, that's an incredible story. And thank you for sharing that with us. If anyone has questions about genetic um, and hereditary cancers, please hit me up because I'm a big advocate. I work with Walter Reed sometimes too, um, to speak with women in my situation um, or men uh, as we learn more about the, the mutations that impact uh, long-term health and cancer freedom. Perfect. Awareness and connection. There we go. Yes. Third order effects of the Mad Scientist podcast. Okay, Joe. So as always, it's hard to follow Maggie. I do not have as coolest story, but um, I guess, so everyone knows I'm a nerd, so that's not really like, I wouldn't be at ACI if that wasn't the case. So it's not really um, that much of news, but to dig a little bit deeper, technically I am a professional gamer, or at least I was, because I used to play um, Quake back in the day and was in one of the leagues and um, didn't win, got second place, but uh, got money from it. So I can at least, you know, throw my credentials around there with the kids these days. Although they would probably crush me in uh, Call of Duty or whatever they're playing at this point. Are we talking? Are we talking Quake? Or are we talking Quake Three Arena? Uh, so it was Quake Three Arena. It was ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two thousand. Okay. okay, respect. And and this is, I mean, this is this is amazing. We've got a Hollywood actress and a professional gamer all at the same time. We've never had that before. Um, all right, so this is the last one. Usually, this is the, this is the hardest one to answer. What's your favorite movie? This is the easiest one to answer. So for me, it's Spaceballs and always has been. So I'm a college dropout originally, and I wrote my college essay on Spaceballs when I originally went to college the first time around. So uh, this is a longstanding uh, love for Spaceballs and Mel Brooks. I share that love for Spaceballs as well. I was watching it the other day. I think it's on Prime now with my kids, and I, I haven't introduced it to them yet, but we're, we're taking it in pieces. So the thing that I love about it is that, you know, Darth Helmet. So originally the idea was to have his like a full body helmet, but they would have had to break and change all of the doorways in the studio. So they had to go with just like the helmet. I think that was probably a good idea in the end. I think so too, but it would have been, it would have been funny too. All right, Joe. Uh, So we were talking about this the other day and I realized that, so I was originally going to say Goonies. But then I realized that Strange Brew, uh, a really obscure comedy uh, with Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas, is probably my favorite movie just because it's completely ridiculous and over the top and stupid humor and bad Canadian accents. And it's just it's one of those easy like I can turn off my brain and laugh type movies. And it's always kind of brought me comfort. I'm a closet Doug and Bob McKenzie fan. So, I, I mean, this couldn't have worked out better between Spaceballs and Strange Brew. Pro- maybe this is probably my top 
three answers to this question that we've had so far. Um, so, so I hope, I, I don't know what that does for anybody out there. There's no value beyond just feeling good about ourselves, but we'll take it. Um, so before I let you guys go, do you have any social media that you'd like to share with people? You're on Twitter. Is there, is there someplace they can go and, and read your research? So I'm at Maggie Smith, C-Y-B-R on Twitter. And then Major Littell can tell you about Army Cyber Institute. Yeah, so Army Cyber Institute is on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. So I'll plug all that. Um, I'm also the unit public affairs representative. So I publish all of our research and papers on that. So if you're curious what we're doing, it goes beyond just this information warfare talk. We talk about, you know, traditional cyber things, policy, um, emerging technologies. We have a amazing guy who is actually my office mate um, that does, uh, you know, robotics. Um, he flies drones in confined spaces. He was just out in Vegas um, helping drive indie cars um, autonomously. So a lot of cool stuff happens here. So I definitely keep up with that. I'm on LinkedIn personally. Um, my name's unique enough that it should be a pretty easy search if people really want to get down to it. I don't tweet, so sorry, um, but you can find me on LinkedIn definitely if you want to get in contact with me. I have one more plug to make. So I just started a, um, a new project with the Modern More Institute, and it's called the Competition in Cyberspace Project, and you can find it um, under their special projects or special series tab on the Modern More Institute site. And we're actually hosting an essay contest. We're soliciting input for what is the greatest policy challenge facing cyberspace operations over the next five years. So if you want to go for that essay contest, um, it's the information is on the Competition in Cyberspace Project's website. But then we're also taking pieces. So if you have a piece that's about emerging technology, about public policy, anything that's related to this, this information domain cyberspace, please uh, send it our way. You can send it to me directly. Um, my, I think my information is on the ACI website, but um, we want to share ideas, get content out there and really start talking about the biggest problems and, and factors in cyberspace and with emerging technologies and adopting new technologies in the Army. That's great. And we're big fans of MWI here. So um, we will try to link to as many things as we can in the blog post that goes along with this podcast. So if you're listening to this now, and you haven't gotten to the blog post, go to madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil or find us on Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and you can get to the blog and you can find all these links and explore through that. Um, so that wraps it up for us. I'm going to thank you both for coming on and talking to us about this uh, topic. Obviously, it's a, it's a very important topic to uh, the Training and Doctrine Command, but to the Army and to the nation as a whole. So once again, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much. This was fun. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guests, Major Joe Littell and Captain Maggie Smith, for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.